This is a becoming creature. Today I am here with River Kenna, a somatic imaginal guide. River uses ideas picked up from Jungian psychology, esoteric Buddhism, and body-mind integration to help people get out of their head and into their life. You can find his work at inthewilderless.com, and you can see his ideas in real time on Twitter at the underscore wilderless. River, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. You entered Twitter through David Chapman's writing. Which of his ideas most resonated with you? I was mostly at that point just reading the Buddhism for Vampires, the little Vajrayana novel that he was putting out at a certain point. Because, yeah, most of my background, most of my reading, my a lot of my meditation practice was in Vajrayana at that point. And, yeah, it was just the main thing that felt actually relevant to me. And his way of writing about it, his way of discussing the ideas, and a lot of the just amusing nature of the side essays that he put in that novel were really helpful and lively to me. And even when I didn't get anything particularly useful out of what he was talking about, his tone of voice of just, yeah, making things flexible and relevant and, hey, you can take this and apply it to your life, your world, the things that you're interested in. That was incredibly helpful. And I found more of that when I switched over to, yeah, reading some of his other stuff, meaningness and what was the other big one? Vividness. Once I got to the end of that, which was far too early, he cut Buddhism for vampires off very early on. And I decided to hop on Twitter, see if I could figure out when this guy was going to release more of it. Turned out the answer was never, but <laughs> I got a Twitter community out of it. So no harm, no foul. You've said that Buddhism is tantamount to escapism. Tell me a bit about your initial struggles with meditation and how they led to other paths of inquiry. <laughs> well, first off, I say a lot of things. <laughs> and yeah, part of that is also informed by J.R.R. Tolkien's idea of escapism, but we can get back to that, so it's fine. But yeah, my early beginnings, my issues with meditation at the beginning were mostly that I was stuck in my head for pretty much my entire early life, and it finally started really destroying my life around my late teens, early 20s. So I went towards meditation, started doing a bunch of that, and the core problem with so much beginner meditation stuff, and I wouldn't put this on Buddhism so much as what I would just refer to widely as like meditation culture. Mm -hmm. The problem with so, 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 so much meditation 101 stuff is that it stays in the head and it only teaches focus and concentration-based meditation. So for me, the main problem was, you know, I need to get out of my head. I come from a culture that lives entirely above the shoulders and is disembodied. I am a person who is incredibly intellectual and incredibly stuck in my head and very living my entire life and just these endless thought loops and inner critic and inner monologue, all of this stuff. And then when I come to meditation to find some way around this, find some other way to live, 
every third word out of their mouths is mind or thought again and again and again. And it's kind of a don't think of elephants situation, you know, (laughs) just pay no attention to your thoughts. Find the gaps between your thoughts. Don't listen to your thoughts. Notice that your thoughts are not yours. Your mind is a blank sky. All of this (laughs) stuff. I just couldn't get away from it. And yeah, it was creating a bit more order and a bit more workability in my mind. But the core problem of me not feeling like a participant in my own life, of me feeling like everything was happening behind my eyes and I couldn't quite reach out and touch anything, the core problem of me not being able to turn off the endless thought loops in my head, Hmm. none of that was really touched by meditation as I found it at the time. And as I have recently discovered, it is still being taught in a lot of places. I was hoping it had gotten better, but it does not look like it has. Regarding this this disembodied thing you're talking about, you said that if you take seriously the idea that you were born as a human for a reason, then a lot of the models of awakening and alignment start to smell deliciously partial and incomplete. In that, are you referring to the uh, feeling disembodied or, or was there more to that? That one is talking about a related but adjacent issue. Um, To quote another tweet of mine that I've put out somewhere. uh, Yeah, I just did a riff one time on like the all-consuming life force of the universe, Brahman or whatever we want to call it. Mm. Like incarnating into human and animal and whatever other life is its way of going to an amusement park. And it just wants to embody and experience existence rubbing up against itself, experience existence unfolding through the, what is David Hinton's phrase? The traceless transformations of being something Mm -hmm. like that. So that's more the core idea there is that, yeah, that partiality that if we are looking at, life as a goal of getting out, get out of samsara, get away from this world, escape and ascend from and transcend all of the stuff that is here and dirty and sticky and frictiony. Mm-hmm. We're ignoring the fact that the divine current of being chose to be here, <laughs> right? Stuff happened and... Yeah, if we take seriously this idea that the divine embodied everything here for a reason, for a purpose, that it's doing something other than just keeping us in a shitty prison to see if we can escape, (laughs) then yeah, it starts to look really partial that the goal is just, oh, we got to get the hell out of here and get everyone the hell out of here as quick as possible. Hmm. Now, you talk a lot about the soul. Uh, I personally, I grew up Christian and I've always kind of struggled to define the soul as separate from like someone's personality or ego. Uh, When you use words like heart and soul, what do those mean to you? Yeah. So when, uh, first off, the soul is not a thing that I tend to use Mm. in the tradition, like in the lineage that I'm kind of loosely a part of as much as it can be called a lineage. I'm kind of coming from places like James Hillman and Rob Berbea 
and they use young in they use soul in a very particular sense. Let me just pull up, see if I can find the some of the Hillman quotes around soul to help evoke this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here we go. So a lot of how people tend to talk about soul, and especially in our part of Twitter, almost everything is downstream of James Hillman in the use of soul, either through David White, who talked about James Hillman a lot, or Rob Berbea, who very explicitly took the whole name soul-making dharma from James Hillman. All of it tends to come back to Hillman's conception of soul, and he draws out a distinction between soul and spirit in his essay Peaks and Veils. Um, If you ever run across James Hillman, which volume is it? Senex and Puer, from the volumes of his collected works. That's where you can find it. But in general, yeah, like soul, he describes imagistically. Spirit is more conceptual. So spirit is much more about high white mountain peaks with a lone monk meditating away with like a single crystalline flower and a jewel-like lake in the high high ground, right? Hmm. Very abstracted, very above everything, ascending, transcending, all of this type of stuff. Soul is much more about the deep shaded valleys, these heavy, luscious black flowers, slow, syrupy rivers emptying into the vast oceans of soul. There's a lot of image around soul, and he explicitly says, we're going to describe soul in terms of image because if we try to describe it in conceptual language, we're trying to get a handle on soul through the perspective of spirit. These abstractions and concepts are the territory of spirit. We have to be moving deeper with soul. We have to allow it to be itself and to be what it is. So what we're talking about when we talk about soul is not like the soul as in like, yeah, Atman, your ghost, the thing that is Mm -hmm. carried through your life and then given up to heaven afterwards or whatever. None of that is really what it means in Hillman's sense and Berbea's sense, any of this stuff. What it refers to is more this quality of, yeah, almost tantric embodiment and tantric enmeshment with the world of being directly here with the friction and with all of this stuff in the world that is delightful and wonderful and enriching and frustrating and painful and awful and enlivening. All of this stuff, the meat of what we are doing here, of what comes up in a lived human experience, all of this is soul. For people that haven't encountered you before or haven't encountered these concepts before, what are somatics and what is the imaginal and how are they connected to one another and in what way are they useful? (laughs) I know it's a lot. (laughs) No, so I'll just speak for, first off, somatics is its own whole vast field. The imaginal is its own much vaster thing, and everyone kind of means something different by imaginal, starting with Henri Corbin and moving forward. I am just going to, yeah, kind of point at what I mean by these two things. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so one, soma, when I say soma, this is pointing towards the body pretty directly. 
but it is also the goal is to expand the notion of body and to kind of get into direct experience. Another term that means almost the same thing as soma to me is phenomenological field. So if you are in the phenomenological field of direct experience, all of the things that are here directly for you to experience, all the things that are going on, many of which we're ignoring, repressing, doing whatever to, and aren't like super available, and we have to really practice to make them available. But they're there. They're part of the phenomenological field if we're able to access them, if we're allowing them to access themselves. So that's kind of what I mean by soma. Soma is directly and most proximally the body. Meditate with the body, get into the body, all of this stuff. And from there, expanding more towards noticing the entire field of experience that is running itself through the body, that is constantly, yeah, rolling itself through your experience. Heart is another aspect of experience. And... I don't know. It's intuitive. It's your heart. It's emotions, how you are connected to people. How are you? You are connected to the world. Two of the key words here are interconnection and intimacy. Mm-hmm. So it's not just kind of abstract connections of, oh yeah, everything's connected. I'm connected to everyone. Here's my family tree. That's heart. Good. It's also intimacy. It is being close to these things, knowing the things that you are connected to, knowing your connection with the world and also having kind of an intimacy with. So for example, if we're talking about intimacy with just a person that you're close to, that's one thing, but Mm -hmm. then also an intimacy with the space between you and them, with the relationship itself, not just with them, but with the relationship. All of that is part of the heart realm. Heart is all of this outward connection and openness, essentially. Hmm. So yeah, there's Soma, there's heart. Imaginal is vast and often difficult to describe, but my best shot would be something like, it is the realm of image and narrative and dream. It is the place where, yeah, where Eros comes from, where purpose and meaning are actually like arising in our experience. And that's pretty abstract. In a much more direct way, we can sense this by, I mean, look around your office, if you have an office or just your house. Can you notice that there are certain objects and certain things that you kind of view as friends or allies that are nice and helpful and good? And certain objects or situations that are your enemies that are against you those dirty dishes are a foe (laughs) kind of ridiculous but it's pretty much how we work right there's a particular Mm -hmm. way of navigating the world through image through narrative through yeah mythopoiesis through all of this stuff that creates a story of who you are what the world is that kind of maps on a lived schema to your experience. The imaginal is where all of this stuff happens, where all of this stuff comes from. And it's a place that most people are incredibly unaware of almost all of the time. We just kind of live out our stories and narratives 
or we will think about it. If our therapist asks us like, can you see how you're living out your relationship with your mother again through all of these things? You'll go, oh yeah, I can kind of see that intellectually. But the imaginal is the place where those types of patterns actually reside. And you have to really dive deep to see them and sense them pretty directly. And hopefully you can kind of see how that connects back to, if we see Soma as rooted in the body, but connecting to the entire phenomenological field of experience, that connects with these things that drive you through the world, these narratives, these stories you tell yourself, these archetypal characters that you kind of carry with you your whole life and paste onto other people and objects around you. We do this unconsciously so often, all the time. All of those are expressions of the imaginal. You use the word somatic resonance. What does it mean to have somatic resonance? Yeah, so a couple things. Um, somatic resonance is first and foremost just a phrase to kind of lock in this idea how you can touch in with the soma and find an enormous amount of resonance there. When you get attuned to your body, to your direct experience, yeah, stuff comes up where you're like, oh, this is the life that I want to be living. Hmm. Holy shit, I am here. Or, oh my God, how did I lock myself into this life that I'm living? How did I find myself in this particular situation? You know, all of these things. That is one type of resonance where you're just finally noticing your own life by what resonates and what doesn't hmm. directly in your body. and. Yeah, I lived in Southeast Asia for years and years, and you would not believe how many times I have seen and met just this archetypal common thing where people live a life that they think they're supposed to be living, that someone else kind of guided them into, and then they snap one day and buy a ticket to Thailand, and they're in Bangkok the next week going, yep, quit my job, left everything behind realized I couldn't keep doing it anymore. This happens a ton. Like every hostel from Bangkok to Chiang Mai is just filled with people like this. And this is kind of an outcome of this lack of resonance, where if you lock away your body, you don't listen to what your own experience is telling you. You learn to push it down, learn to push it away. Either it's kind of a gamble where either you can make it your whole life without ever listening to yourself and that'll be fine. Or you're just going to snap one day and run away and need a complete clean break from everything. And honestly, the snapping and having a clean break is one of the better scenarios. <laughs> there are worse ways that it could go than that. But yeah, that's the basic meaning of somatic resonance. Just this ability to check in with your direct experience get past all of the competing interests and competing currents of other people's opinions and conditioning and everything else and just go, oh, this is what I want to be moving towards. This is what is trying to live itself through me. And just notice that. So somatics is a lot about how experience emerges, especially in the body. And you're talking about our relationships to things and to people but also our relationships to our narratives. 
what is the difference between like inner narrative versus fictional narrative versus mythic narrative patterns and other cultural schemas? Yeah, there's one thing underlying all of these that mm -hmm. I've been kind of struggling to communicate. At the moment, I'm thinking of it as just like infra-narrative or something like that, where all of those come from the same underlying patterning impulse, but they manifest in different ways and in ways that are different enough that we shouldn't confuse them and we should try to separate them out a bit. I've got like half of a sub stack written on this somewhere <laughs> and I'm just going to riff on what I had there. I think what I took was, yeah, I took one, one actual myth, one of these patterns and tried to run it through. What is this as a Greek myth, like an old religious myth? What is it as a psychological myth? Something that is, you know, running the narrative of your life. What is it as a cultural schema? And one of the more obvious ones of these is Narcissus, right? Mm -hmm. Where we have the Greek myth where the guy, you know, looks in the pond, sees himself and just absolutely falls in love with himself and can't stop staring at himself until he dies. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot going on there. He's the son of a river god or something. There's like a lot of religious stuff tied into that and a lot of cultural stuff from its home culture. So that's its own thing, right? But it does have this pattern of, for lack of a better word, narcissism in it, of falling in love with yourself can lead to the, your downfall, right? Mm -hmm. And then we can also see this, obviously, in psychological narratives. We have all met and known narcissists. We have all seen our own narcissistic tendencies from time to time. Some people more, some people less, but we've all got them, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's pretty easy to touch into and... Again, coming back to the somatic aspect, you can notice that in your direct experience, when there are times when you are noticing you are narcissistic, noticing that you're becoming self-obsessed, that you're behaving in these ways where you're just, you know, a parakeet staring in the mirror, literally or metaphorically, something where you just can't stop looking at yourself, noticing yourself, wanting to dive deeper into you, you, you. You can notice how that feels in your direct experience and kind of track it. And you can really see how it relates to these older myths that bear the same underlying pattern. And then you can see how the cultural schemas come about where, okay, if we've got this underlying archetypal pattern of narcissism and we build a culture around that narcissism, that bends our culture in a lot of weird ways and creates a whole lot of strange conditions that, yeah, just make their way into the world because we've created a narcissistic culture where we all just want to, for example, hear ourselves talk for whatever five or six minutes I've been going on <laughs> about this, right? And yeah, so this is one actually fairly clear example of how the imaginal makes its way into the world. And this is one of the most important, one of the most important and one of the most overlooked things that I see in the world is that all of this airy, fairy, artsy, whatever imagination stuff, it makes its way into the world and it shapes entire cultures and it shapes entire lives and entire ages of lives, 
right? Mm -hmm. But if we try to talk about it, how this imaginative pattern of self-loving too much to the exclusion of all else, how that makes its way into the world, changes things for the worse, it just kind of gets dismissed as eh, a bunch of humanities nonsense. Don't don't listen to them. It's just liberal art shit. Make sure you stay on the STEM path or whatever it's going to be, right? Do the real stuff. But yeah, all of these things, they are patterns that decide where human energy gets directed. And I can't really think of anything more important than how and in what ways human energy is directed. You've written that the key to inner growth is inside the plot holes of the myths you inhabit. But can you tell me a bit about uh, mythopoetics, what that is and how we can use it to kind of better understand our own lives and our, uh, our own interaction with, with things and people in the world? Yeah, the first thing is when I use the term myth and by extension mythopoetics, I'm using a pretty particular meaning of that, and it's kind of a crossover between two of my favorite thinkers. One is Mary Midgley. The other one I've already mentioned, James Hillman. He always mm -hmm. comes up. But yeah, there's a couple, there's two quotes that I really love that dovetail to kind of show where my meaning of myth comes from. Mary Midgley begins her book, Myths We Live By, with a line that I'm going to butcher, but this is close enough. Uh, myths, myths are not lies, nor are they deceptions or misconceptions. They are imaginative patterns. They are symbolic networks that shape how we see the world. They outline its meaning, right? So myths mm -hmm. are these internal patterns that shape the meaning of the world for us, right? Mm -hmm. And then James Hillman said a very dense sentence, uh, myth is the metaphor that translates libido into configurations. Yeah, again, similar idea that myth is the thing that takes our libido, our life energy, and shapes it in a particular direction, gives it a particular shape that makes us want certain things, that makes us find certain things worth thinking about, worth doing, worth anything, right? And yeah, these two things kind of come together. The symbolic networks, these, yeah, networks of symbols are these things that drive us, that decide how we see the world and what we will put our energy in the world towards. So that's kind of the base level of all of this. And mythopoetics, poesis is just making, so myth-making. Mythopoetic practice is very much based around, first off, direct perception of these things, which is, yeah, based in the somatic, first of all, and then moving your way through your entire experience. You just get to start noticing in yourself, then in others, and the culture around you, oh, I can directly sense these particular patterns that are kind of tugging at my, my wants, my needs, my desires, my energy. They're tugging at me and trying to shape my idea of what is worthwhile, right? Mm -hmm. Families do this. Teachers do this. Advertisers do this. Cultural propaganda does this. The books we read do this, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I spent a lot of my teenage years wanting to move out off to 
Paris or Prague or something and be a starving artist living in an attic somewhere while I wrote <laughs> vast, lovely novels, right? Mm -hmm. That wasn't really like a desire that was springing forth from my soul. It was, I read a bunch of stuff by Dostoevsky and the, and the like, and they kind of just memed me into wanting to be a starving artist with a lot of <laughs> intensity of experience. Mm -hmm. So once I noticed that, far too late, <laughs> but I was kind of able to see, okay, that's how I've been driving my experience. That's how I've been deriving meaning. That is not helpful. And it's holding me back in these very specific areas of my life. I can now start untangling that, start kind of tending to my garden of myths, uprooting some of them that aren't doing so great for me, planting other ones that are. And garden is actually not a great metaphor. It's more like a forest because you're not really planting it. You're just trying desperately to shape the wisdom of this thing that is much older and wiser than you and trying to like bend it towards, okay, but could you also give me something to eat? Could you grow a couple of these fruits and veggies for me? Would that be okay? Maybe? Not really? Okay. And yeah, there's this negotiation going on with your own myths, your own narratives, and the ones in the culture around you. Because yeah, some of them are really hard walls to run up against. You're not gonna, even if you are some type of psychopath that very deeply believes murder is totally fine and you should just be able to do it and not let society guide you, they're still gonna put you in jail, no matter how much you reshape the narrative internal to yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, mythopoetic practice takes all of these things into account. What are the actual limitations in the world around you? What are the limitations that you're finding in yourself, in your relationship? Where is the energy being driven and shaped? And are there ways that you can drive and shape it differently? And then the discernment to actually know when you should and should not be doing that. We all dream... And I'll actually tell you, this is true. I had a dream last night where um, I remember seeing on Twitter, uh, like in China, there were these these high rises that they were demolishing. And there were just like dozens of these high rises that were just collapsing. And in my dream, I was in one of these high rises at the base level before uh, before it collapsed. And I went like down to the basement or something. And it was like a, a flourishing area with greenery and running water and everything. And there were two panthers that seemed uh, like somewhat kind, but a little bit on edge, you know, how cats are. And one of them gave me like a love bite on my arm and I panicked and I just like didn't, I, I didn't like freak out physically, but I, I like this terror overwhelmed me. Most of us have these dreams and then we go, oh, that's cool or that's interesting or that's strange or that's scary. And then we kind of just like move past it. What can be unearthed with dream work? What, what, what is important? Like, should we be paying more attention to our dreams and our relationship to them? Or how, how would, should we interact with them? Anytime someone tells me one of their dreams, my first instinct is to immediately start dipping into dream guidance but we mm -hmm. do not have time. So I'll just move past that. <laughs> or you could summarize it if, if you want, or, or just talk about uh, what, what's important or 
um, how we should think about this on our own. Yeah, so a couple of core ideas here. This is a bit scattered. I'm at the moment, I literally spent all day today kind of working through phase one of the Mythosomatic Dreamwork course that I'm putting together. So mm-hmm. all of this is very flying around in my mind. But a couple of core things are like one, dream interpretation is not particularly useful, especially mm-hmm. the way that people do it, where you go to the store, you buy a book of dream symbols. You go, okay, there were three owls, and three is a number that means this, and owls are a symbol of that. Okay, right. this must be what I'm feeling. Unhelpful. Not not ideal. Yeah. And this is mostly a way of depotentiating the dreams. When we try to do this, we're usually not so much trying to understand the Well, we are trying to understand the dream, but in a very, like, left hemisphere way, where we just want to control it and take away its power and have a thing like have a label to put on it, have a box to put it in, and then it's all good. Mm-hmm. This is generally not helpful. The this goes back to James Hillman and Soul again, letting things be what they are. The core practice with a dream and with dream work, with dream return, is just to let the dream be what it is and kind of return to it and develop a relationship with it. Uh, One of James Hillman's best examples that I like, one of the clearest ones, is you have a dream of a policeman chasing after you. You wake up drenched in sweat, your heart beating, feeling terrified, and your first thought is, okay, the the police officer was just a symbol of my guilt complex. I have a guilt complex, and that's just a normal thing. I grew up Catholic or whatever, so it's (laughs) fine. I'm going back to sleep. Mm Mm-hmm. What you've done there is you've taken away all the potential to actually, all the potential that was there in the image, in the police officer, in the chase, to actually dive into how that feels to be chased, what the police officer's motivations are, what you're feeling coming off of him and in the running away from him. Diving into this experience, working with it, feeling it through your body, in your experience, metabolizing it. You've thrown all of that away, and what you've gotten in return is a couple of syllables. Guilt complex. That's kind of the core of it. And just to give my usual (laughs) example here, one of the biggest dreams of my life was involved a bison. And I returned to that dream later and dropped into meditation, dropped into trance, and called back up the image of the dream and allowed it to continue unfolding itself. Fairly classic. Jungian active imagination exercises mixed in with some more like shamanic journeying type stuff. And Mm -hmm. in my case, I went to the bison and the question that seemed to want to, to be asked of the bison was what path do I follow? Like if you tell me to go to Japan and join a monastery, fine, cool. Tell me to become a Sufi and go train with the Sufis. Excellent. But like which conveyor belt should I put myself on to become the person I need to be. Mm. And there was just a very visceral experience of like the bison turning around, looking towards me and looking through the dream me to the me that was lying, meditating on the floor and just kind of pointing it out to the dream me of like, okay, you're lying on the floor. You're in meditation in a mix of like 
meditative and trance and shamanic techniques that you've learned, doing dream work that you learned from modern Jungians, talking to a bison in your living room, what part of this doesn't seem like a path to you, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And yeah, the within two weeks, maybe three weeks, this lifelong issue that I had had around like authority and wanting a path to follow and needing like the security of somewhere to put my feet and take the next step, step by step, all of that just kind of dissolved. And I was suddenly very comfortable with doing what wanted to be done, allowing it to unfold and just continuing to see where it goes and where it takes me and to trust my own feet and to trust the path under my feet. That was, I cannot overemphasize how huge that was. Like this had dominated my life before that. And then a little bit of dream work and the entire energy shifted. If myths are the metaphor that configures libido into, con into configurations, then yeah, that dream just completely reconfigured my libido into a different shape, into a different way to drive my energy through this life. And that has happened in greater and lesser extents in lots of dreams for me. It's pretty reliable. And it's kind of insane to me that people just leave it on the table. Like... Mm. We know this from, I mean, every single culture that we have a record of paid a lot of attention to dreams and gave a lot of respect to dreams. And we just kind of went, no thanks. <laughs> Can you give me a few examples of the somatic or the imaginal or the dream work? Maybe, maybe don't walk me through the whole process. But what are some examples of things that people can do to uh, begin doing this work if they've never done it before? Most Okay, so a lot of it at the beginning is orientation type stuff. Just finding the right orientation that will carry you through the rest of it, the work. And for a lot of it, like, if you can get that really na nailed down, everything else will kind of unfold in its own time. So there's one exercise somatically that I've done in a couple places. It's basically two ways a body scan feels. And I won't do the guided version of it here. I think there's a small guided version on my Stoa talk on YouTube somewhere around 19 minutes in or so. But the essential thing is like, take a couple minutes, feel your body from the feet upward. Just can you feel your feet? What do your ankles feel like? What do your shins, your calves feel like, etc.? And then just whenever you've gotten into that rhythm, take a moment and notice what does it feel like when you're scanning your body? For most people, most of the time, and this is like 98% so far, what it's going to feel like when you're scanning your body is like there's a little me in your head right behind the eyes, and that that me is the one who is reaching out and checking in on the feet, checking in on the ankles, that this me in the head is the one who is doing the experiencing of the body, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty much always the case. <laughs> um, but there is a second way that it can feel, which is much more 
Yeah, I tend to describe this practice as just let X be aware of itself, right? Mm. And so, for example, the foot starting at the bottom of the body with the feet, let the feet be aware of themselves. There's not this attention in the head that's reaching out to grab the feet and feel them. No, it's just the foot already has some awareness in it before you ever reached out to check on them. So just let that awareness shine a little brighter, move a little more deeply, become a bit more vibrant. And then up to the ankle. Let the ankle be aware of itself. Let it shine its own little vibrant awareness just a little bit more, a little bit louder. Turn up the volume there. And continue that all through the body. And eventually into let the full body be aware of itself all at once so that it's not this me in the head who is becoming aware of the body. It's just the body opening experience to itself. And over time, the borders kind of shift and blur so that there's much less of a head me and you kind of are all of this, right? The soma is the soma. The body is the body. There's not some little guy behind your eyes riding around your body like a machine, using it like a tool. The body is the body, right? And yeah, when we are in, there's a lot of things associated with this being behind the eyes state. But one of the most important ones is that most of the time for most people, it feels like the body is beneath us, literally and metaphorically. Like we are up here and the body's down there. And also the body is kind of this lesser thing. It's just a tool. It's something I can move around and use, but it's not me. Mm -hmm. This practice dissolves a lot of that over time. So just let X be aware of itself. Let the body be aware of itself. And then after a couple few months of that, <laughs> if you want to come back, there becomes available a weird sounding but cool move of let X be aware of Y. And this is where we get to fairly wild instructions around like, let your foot be aware of your shoulder. Let your knees be aware of your heartbeat. What's happening there? What's going on? And my favorite one I've ever given anyone when they were trying to work on more open awareness practice, I just said, while you're walking down the street, let your backpack be aware of passing traffic. <laughs> and they just came back like why the fuck did that work that shouldn't <laughs> work that doesn't make sense but yeah just these ways of letting awareness experience itself rather than having this controlling knotted little me behind the eyes that is doing all of the experiencing of things that move alone is just pure magic if you follow it through to the end and then yeah, imaginal practice is a little bit harder to get like a beginner thing. A lot of the things that beginners that are offered as beginner exercises are just kind of these top-down visualization exercises of, oh, imagine a wonderful, relaxing place and your higher self is there to meet you. And what is your higher self saying to you? I'm not so much a big fan of top-down imaginal. It has its place for sure but I don't like to set the tone with it. I think it should come after a pretty firm grounding and bottom-up imaginal. But bottom-up imaginal work is much more drifty and often difficult for beginners. 
because it's just kind of about noticing what's happening in your raw experience and allowing it to take form and take shape for itself. So I do tend to recommend dream work as kind of a good in-between intro Mm -hmm. because your unconscious is already giving you imagery, narrative, emotion, this atmospheric knowing that we have in dreams. You get all of that for free in your dreams. And then if you want to do imaginal practice with it later, you've already got that image. So what I would mainly recommend if you're just interested in starting out with this, take some part of a recent dream that feels somewhat powerful, somewhat, yeah, like there's still some juice in it. Like something happened there that you want a little more of. And just hold it in your mind. In med- Like first relax yourself, drop into meditation, get into trance, all of this stuff. And then just call up the dream and return to it as much as you're able. And that means calling back, if there's a visual, call back up that visual. If there's some emotional content, there's a bunch of fear in the atmosphere of the dream, call that back up. Bring that back into the container. If there's a sense that you didn't notice in the dream, but now that you're like thinking back on it, you realize, oh wait, there's like kind of a background texture of concrete in this. This feels very industrial, industrial toned as a dream. Bring that into it. So you're trying to bring in all of these different threads, all of these different parts of the dream, even ones that you might not usually think of when describing a dream, and just hold them. That's the first thing. Just hold them, practice containing them in yourself, returning to them, And over time, it will start to move and unfold on its own pretty reliably. And when a dream starts unfolding on its own, uh, Jung referred to this as like dreaming the dream forward or something, the dream forward. But yeah, just letting the dream unfold and continue, it will kind of take over and it will just keep going. And then after that, Once you've gotten to that stage, which again is a couple few months probably, then you can start interacting with it more and not just letting the dream unfold, but also you moving intuitively with the dream and figuring out what's happening here, what wants to unfold. And yeah, the most important thing here is any image that we encounter, let the image be the image. So if you've got a policeman, don't turn it into a guilt complex. If you've got a snake trying to coil itself around you. Don't turn it into some mythic symbol from early Christian, whatever, whatever, or some alchemical symbol of this and that. It's a snake. How would you treat a snake? How do you feel towards the snake? Let the snake be the snake. All of this stuff. So yeah, that's less of a practice and more of just like move towards returning to the dream on its own terms and build those skills. That's really good imaginal intro. When I think about the imaginal, I'm curious about how it's affected by aphantasia. So for instance, I've, I've talked to a lot of people about this and um, evidently, I think it's actually pretty rare, but some people, when they think of an onion, they can actually taste it. Um, and if they think about, you know, ice cream, they could taste it. And they, they can like actually in their mouth, taste 
onion ice cream if they think of onion ice cream. Whereas I, I mean, I cook a lot and I conceptually understand how a lot of things can work together and have a good outcome. But no matter how hard I think about garlic, I can't taste it. And that's an example of aphantasia, but people have this um, regarding bringing up images in their mind and um, maybe uh, a smell or something like that. And and you can have aphantasia uh, among a lot of different senses in the mind. Um, So how do you think that might affect imaginal work or, or do you think it's not important? Yeah, so the main misconception I see about aphantasia stuff is kind of the assumption that imaginal is primarily visual, right? Because we use the word image a lot, or even the word visions a lot, in old religious visions and stuff. And in all of these things, like what is seen is not necessarily the most important thing, or even in the top five <laughs> a lot of the time. But it's much more about felt sense is kind of the core of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we have this example of like, if we say imagine a tiger, some people will think that means imagine, like visualize a tiger, hold the image of a tiger in your mind and can you rotate it? Can you spin it? How much can you see? This is mm-hmm. a measure of how good your imagination is or how adept you are at imaginal stuff. Not really connected to the imaginal at all. The main thing there with the tiger example would be, can you call up in yourself what it would be like to be standing next to a tiger or to have a tiger in front of you? Mm -hmm. You bring up, you know, the scent of a wild animal and the feeling of kind of fear looking at its teeth, this sense of like the texture of the space around it and what the atmosphere is like for you being that close to a wild animal or in some cases being the wild animal, right? Like you are the tiger. What does it feel like to be a tiger, to feel that strength, that hunger, all that stuff. So in some ways, aphantasia is really just no obstacle whatsoever. (laughs) And I've had quite a few aphantasics like come to my workshops or approach me and talk about it, want to have calls about it. They seem pretty curious about what it means for them and what imaginal practice would be like for them if they can even participate. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the sense, the sense-based stuff is not particularly any kind of an obstacle, whatever your own personal lived felt sense of an experience is bringing that into the imaginal evoking it and yeah, treating it on its own terms is really all that we can ask for. Right. And Mm -hmm. to whatever degree anyone is able to do that, Good, do it, engage, all of that stuff. What I do find interesting is that I've seen some work suggesting that aphantasia is connected to a larger suite of cognitive patterns that are much more mechanical, just mechanistic cognitive patterns. And that does, it doesn't seem to be based on nothing from my experience with aphantasic people. And a lot of them, like, self-admitted, just have more computational, mechanical type minds. Their minds just work in a very ordered fashion like that. So there does seem to be some amount of like self-selection away from the vibes of imaginal practice and away from the, yeah, this might just be like a sociological relic of the type of people who come to imaginal practice really strongly. 
but the field is generally pretty inflected with a lot of flexibility and flow and movement and all of these things. And some people who do have these suites of more mechanistic cognitive patterns just don't really feel that into it sometimes. <laughs> They'll engage with certain parts of it, and I'm often surprised by which parts they actually engage with and they actually mm -hmm. find some meaning in. But in general, yeah, they kind of take what they can out of it and then don't dive a whole lot deeper, except in, I can think of one case where someone with that particular set of patterns has really stuck with it and really, you know, reapproaches me every couple months to tell me what's going on. Mm. And it's very different from my own imaginal practice, but it's been really interesting to watch him kind of develop and figure out what's going on with himself internally. But by and large, yeah, a couple aphantasic people have just straight up dismissed the imaginal and just not been interested in it. You kind of describe it to them and are like, oh, you know, like the patterns and narrative stories and everything that you live by and the things that kind of produce your lived experience. They'll be like, eh, I kind of just see reality, so I'm not interested. They're like, okay, but can you see how like the thing that you think is reality is itself a bit of a story like limiting the scope of what is out there? And they're like, nah. <laughs> yeah. So there does seem to be just less of an interest in the general vibe from people with those cognitive patterns, which again, I'm no expert, but some things have suggested that they are connected to aphantasia or that aphantasia is connected with them. So we're talking about aphantasia. Have you encountered anyone that experiences synesthesia? And does that affect the imaginal or the somatic work in some way? As far as I can tell, like, raw human experience very often is synesthesia when you get to a certain level. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of things, mostly this shows up as language. People have a hard time finding language when they get fairly deep into the imaginal. Uh, the words like texture and scent will come up a lot these kind of underused senses that we don't have a lot of preconceptions about, people will use those to describe what comes up in deep imaginal practice because there's nothing else that really comes close to the way that something is like felt in a dream atmosphere way, but also with a suggestion of visual flavor to it. Even there, you can hear me. It's like visually flavored experiences <laughs> that come out yeah. of the they come out of the mid body and out of the torso and stuff like this you look at like psychedelics you take acid and stuff you get some weird synesthesia your senses your sense data just kind of mixes together that seems to happen a lot at the really deep levels of human experience and just as a reminder like it's obvious <laughs> but worth restating the senses are a human thing like Sound does not exist. Moving airwaves exist. There's no such thing right. as sound. We just take in these airwaves and our experience filters them a particular way. Same for all of the senses. So when you get deeper through the level, kind of pre-reifying these different sense streams, mm -hmm. yeah, they start to mix and move and mingle in and out of each other. Embryosophy asked me a question that is related to what we're talking about. Mm. And she asks, um, how do you find that the physical, emotional, and energetic bodies overlap? And in what ways do you find them to be distinct? I like the rain. Have I already mentioned I like rainbow analogies? I think I 
mm-hmm. brought that up earlier. Same thing basically applies here. It's all one thing. It is all the sense field, the soma, right? All of it is in there. But yeah, it's useful to draw them out into three or four different, this bit of the body, like the anatomical body. I have blood and muscle and nerves and all of this stuff. And how can I work with that? And then, yeah, the energetic and emotional bodies, those ones get trickier to talk about. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in the beginning, I would say I just kind of group those together of like, where in your body is there physical and not physical stuff? And then once you get a bit deeper into the practice, then people can start separating out like, okay, this feels more like an energetic rush. And this feels much more emotionally connected. And you can see this even kind of towards the beginning when people start opening up to somatic meditation, opening up to the body and kind of realizing, oh, wait, my hands, like I can feel my fingers, but it also feels like there's just this undifferentiated buzzing for like a few inches around my hands. That's very shimmery. Mm -hmm. That's really, and it feels like energetic. It feels like electricity or static just buzzing around your hand much more of an energetic experience and people will move into like lower in the body and there's usually a lot of uh sadness and feeling of like captivity in the thighs and Mm -hmm. the legs generally and people will find that and get this kind of imagistic sense of the emotions coming up out of it and yeah this is all very tied together because usually if you hit a deep pocket of grief and sadness in the legs for example there's also an energetic component to that there will be some sense of like movement that is not like muscular or physical movement but some movement pattern that is more energetic that is connected with that grief connected with that sadness and often an image of some sort even if it's just a vague sense of like the color purple but wobbly There's a wobbly purple in that grief and sadness and in that Mm -hmm. pattern of movement. So in some ways, they're all the exact same thing. They're all, the experiences are all connected and they all kind of cross boundaries. But yeah, they are different prisms on that experience, different ways of filtering out and talking about a particular thing. Embryosophy also asks, do you have a somatics or movement pet peeve Or do you encounter any common misconceptions about somatics work? Yeah, so this one is more annoying to myself and about myself. And I've talked about this a couple of times, but my past year and a half or so has just been a pattern of increasing annoyance that chakras are real and are a thing, apparently. Mm Because these same patterns show up in people's emotional and energetic bodies over and over again. And so A, I think, yeah, there's very much something to these patterns that show up of these particular issues tend to show up in the hips. This particular issue shows up in the solar plexus and it's very often connected to the throat, et cetera, et cetera. But I also need to find more ways to kind of push back against the common view of chakras as like these little discs lined up along the spine or something. That has not been my experience of them in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Um, But the things that kind of map onto 
quote unquote chakras, whatever it is, for me, read more like energy motifs in the body where like pretty reliably I can sense into my legs and there are particular emotions and narratives and patterns down there that tend to be much more based on survival and money and food and the physical body and injury and all of this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And those are pretty, there's like a lot of moving density through the legs is how legs and hips is how I would describe it. But like you look at little chakra maps and it's like, oh, it's this little red thing right at the base of your spine. It's kind of spinning and hanging out there. And that's where you'll find these issues. And then same thing running up, you know, the next disc has these issues. The next disc has these issues, these issues. And that seems, I don't know, maybe, maybe like 10 years from now, I'll look back and be like, oh no, it really is just discs along the spine. I can feel that now, wherever I'm at now, (laughs) there's Mm. just these particular patterns of feeling and sensing in the body that are deeply connected to certain issues in people's lives. And it seems pretty reliable person to person. You get someone who's saying, oh yeah, I've had a lot of trouble. I feel really tight in my solar plexus. There's just this like collapsed feeling there or stuckness or numbness. It's like, okay, do you have a lot of problems with like your personal power and expressing yourself in the world and to the people around you and like making your presence felt? Oh yeah, that's a constant issue for me. Of course mm. it is. Yeah, that's a connected thing apparently. And yeah, so basically the whole everything around chakras. I'm annoyed with the super anti-chakra people and the super chakra people because mm. none of them seem to actually be describing the stuff that I have run across that loosely maps onto hey, there's different issues locked in different types of the parts of the body. And here's kind of sort of where they tend to locate for most people. And I haven't seen a good description of that that maps anywhere close to the experience that I've actually had with it. You've said we should unbecome who we aren't. How do we distinguish between our modes of being regarding who we are and who we aren't? practice. (laughs) Um, This is kind of a full progression, but yeah, there's this whole series of things where basically in the beginning, you are noticing the patterns that are moving through you. And this is, that might sound abstract, walking through your day, just literally, hey, I want to grab a hamburger. Interesting. What is that feeling that I'm feeling pulled towards that for lunch. What does that feel like in me? Now that I'm paying attention to that, there's another part of me wanting to go and get a salad. What does that feel like to have that counter impulse, that thing moving through me? Now that I've noticed both of those, there's this third thing that is reminding me there's a Thai restaurant around the corner. What is the sense of that? So even just on this really grounded level of what am I noticing? What am I sensing right now? Once you get a pretty good sense for what that is like most of the time, what those patterns feel like, you can start to notice that some of them, I'm just going to make broad sweeping generalizations here. Some of them kind of feel very external, like there's something grabbing onto you from the outside. 
and pulling you along or like you're swept up in something that's just putting you on autopilot and moving you in a certain direction. A lot of things will feel like that from the beginning. Almost all of us are running on so many layers of programming (laughs) all the time. Mm -hmm. And just noticing, hey, this one feels like a type of programming that's related to this little network of stuff. Oh, it's taken six or eight months, but I finally noticed that was a bunch of programming that I got from church, like up through 15 years old when I went to church Mm -hmm. from one to 15. Okay, now I know what that pattern feels like and I can kind of adjust to meet it. Oh, this one feels like television and advertising and these kind of very hyper-stimulus lives that we are exposed to, that I'm supposed to have a hyper-stimulus type of life where I have sex with all of the people and I become a rock star and I've got six-pack and I've got all this stuff. The hyper-stimulus life pull has a particular feel. And you can notice when you're responding to that, when you're pulling to that. So over the course of long-ass time, you just kind of sit and notice these narratives, notice these patterns that are expressing themselves through you, that are pulling on you, that are tugging you. And once you start, yeah, just variously dealing with those, deciding which ones you need to cut off, which ones are fine to leave where they are for now, just noticing when one is at present, you will also start to notice that there is something getting increasingly strong in you that is a type of pull that doesn't feel as much like something is pulling you and tugging you from the outside, but feels more like more like an emerging magnet from inside of you. Like you've been magnetized towards something that is internally wanting you to move towards it, wanting you to recognize its field and move with its field. That's the thing that I tend to refer to as eros, where you are actually finding these internal urges. Uh, I like the word autochthonous for this. The urges that just arise naturally from the soil of your being. Those things have kind of their own flavor, their own feel that is different from all these other ones. And this is obviously just the work of a lifetime. It's constantly ongoing. Yeah, it's possible to recognize which things are external pulls, which of those external pulls are perfectly fine, perfectly adaptive, perfectly, yeah, just good to keep going with, and which ones you really need to unhook from and are really dragging you in bad directions. And then also what things are coming from inside of you and how you can orient your life more towards following those internal magnetic pulls rather than these kind of fish hooks from the outside that are trying to pull you in a hundred different directions. You've written that being a little nebulous is a way to help train discernment in your community. Being pornographically clear and point by point atrophies people's ability to pull things together on their own. I think here you're highlighting our two main modes, which you describe as systematic and spontaneous How is recognizing the way those two modes work together useful? Yeah, a few things to respond to there. First of all, that tweet, the, yeah, being nebulous, it helps train discernment. A, that is extremely true and has only become clearer to me over time. Mm -hmm. And B, uh, (laughs) it is also more complicated than that because you need some way that people will actually 
yeah, you need to bring people in close enough to the point where they actually want to sort through your nebulosity, want to figure out for themselves what is behind this nebulous pattern. And to do that, you have to allow a certain amount of pornographic clarity of like, all right, here's the guided meditation. Step 1.1, this. Step 1.2, this. On and on and on. So leaving that aside and jumping back to systematic and spontaneous working together, a lot of different ways to go about this. Um, two main ones that I enjoy. So one, spontaneous mode is about open awareness. Mm-hmm. And systematic mode is by and large focused awareness, concentrate, concentrated attention, really. And it is just kind of a plain fact about those things that mm-hmm. open awareness is the background fabric of everything about us. Concentrated attention is one of the things that open awareness does. It is a subset of open awareness, something that open awareness, yeah, I think I described this before as like open awareness, mythopoetic cognition. These things are the operating system that we run on. Mm-hmm. Systematic mode, this concentration and focus is just one of the apps on that operating system. It's one possible thing that is done by open awareness. So that's part of the relationship there is just concentrated focus is a thing that is nested inside of spontaneous open awareness and has to serve the interests of that spontaneous open awareness. And one really good model I've seen from this, I'm pretty sure I read it in Ian McGilchrist, but it might've just been someone working off of his work. No, I'm pretty sure it was from actually from him. Either way, so Ian McGilchrist's model, the left and right hemispheres of the brain, roughly the right hemisphere corresponds to spontaneous mode, and the left hemisphere corresponds to systematic mode. And he said that kind of the proper movement for things in our lives is to go from right to left, back to right. So Mm -hmm. Everything about us kind of starts in open awareness, starts in spontaneous openness. And yeah, like playing the piano is a good example for this. No one has rationally decided, I must learn to play the piano for reasons X, Y, and Z, right? Well, unless you were forced to by your parents, but whatever. If you are choosing for yourself to learn to play music, that is because something in you recognizes the wonder and awe and beauty of music and wants to take part in creating that. And that whatever particular instrument or set of skills that you choose towards making music are the ways that just feel most aligned with you and with your vision of what music is and what it's for and all those things. All of that is arising from spontaneous awareness, arising from the, le- the right hemisphere. Then you have to move towards the left to learn the actual technical skills of how the hell do I do that, (laughs) right? It is not an easy or intuitive thing to just sit down and play advanced piano music. You have to learn to read the music, train your fingers to move in the correct ways. And all throughout this, there's kind of a feedback loop where it keeps going from, it emerged from the right hemisphere, goes to the left to sharpen that urge into something useful and usable, And then returns to the right hemisphere as, wow, playing this music makes me feel so much joy and awe and wonder. I'm so glad to be taking part in this. And now back to skills, learning more skills, sharpening it even better, 
etc. It's a process of integration from right to left, back to right, right to left, back to right. Spontaneous to systematic, back to spontaneous. It always has to come back to open awareness, always has to drop back to the spontaneous mode. And the systematic mode is just one of the most effective tools that we have as fields of spontaneous awareness, but still is a tool of spontaneous awareness. Hmm. What are some of your favorite prompts to recall throughout the day in order to, uh, you know, get grounded in the body or, or to observe something or uh, to just kind of like, you know, wake yourself up to, to a different mode of thinking, et cetera? Yeah. So one of them I talked about before, just the let X be aware of itself and let mm -hmm. X be aware of Y. I'm doing that all the time. Just let breathing be aware of itself. Good. Let the walking be aware of itself. Excellent. Those ones I'm pretty much always in. Like, that's kind of a meta, meta meditation that I'm doing throughout my days is like the same way that in focus meditation, you might attend to the breath, drift away. And then every time you notice you've drift away, return to the breath. I'm pretty much always in that prompt. Let the breathing be aware of the breathing. Let the speaking be aware mm -hmm. of the speaking. And when I notice that I've drifted from that, just come back to it. Just come back to it. Just come back to it. And aside from that, a lot of my prompts are nonverbal. They're just sense-based. But I will draw one of them out just as an example. It's based on the spontaneous and systematic split. The systematic mode has a lot of telltale signs about it in direct experience. If I feel like I'm up in my head, I'm probably in systematic mode. Mm -hmm. If I feel kind of claustrophilic, like I'm really enjoying just small, small spaces, zooming in on things, getting down into the nitty gritty, I am probably in the systematic. If I'm talking a lot for a long time, it's almost impossible to avoid being in the systematic because mm -hmm. it is the primary verbal area, right? But whenever I notice some of these prompts, some of these cues and triggers that like, ah, you're in systematic mode. I use those as a trigger to move towards something more spontaneous, whether that's full body awareness, whether it's allowing experience to be aware of itself, whether it's a sense of curiosity, exploration, humility. I use those systematic cues as triggers to move back towards more spontaneous experience pretty constantly kind of do it a lot. I did it about a minute and a half ago before starting speaking. And that did make speaking a whole lot easier. That was nice. <laughs> you said to go easy on your brain is tired from inventing time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What do you, what do you mean by that? Or, or how would you go deeper into that? I wouldn't probably, but <laughs> <laughs> No, the, I mean, yeah, time's weird, right? It's not a thing. The more you dig into direct experience, the more it becomes clear that time is just fucking weird and doesn't actually make much sense. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can tell, the further you dig down into physics, the more time is not a thing and doesn't really make sense. So mm -hmm. it seems like time is an extremely limited 
concept and kind of the same way I said earlier that like sound isn't real. <laughs> There's just particular mm-hmm. ways that human humans interface with the world that creates sound and vision and all these things. Seems like there is something similar going on with time where time like if things are real on a scale of 1 to 10 with 10 being the most real like times maybe a 3 or a 4 it's <laughs> i'm not going to take time isn't real as an excuse for you being like 40 minutes late to a meeting but also it's kind of not real <laughs> you've said related to time you've said that you're much less impressed by past life memories than by present life competence. Mm. What significance do past life memories have and what role do they play? Oh, I have no idea, man. Uh, (laughs) I've mentioned this a few times before. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I don't think I mentioned it here, but uh, yeah, one of my earlier experiences with like being unable to ignore imaginal content was Mm -hmm. I was getting a massage and out of the intense pain in my shoulder, from this body worker came these like essentially what people must be talking about when they talk about past life memories because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's exactly what it was and what it felt like there was you know in daydreaming you can kind of watch experiences pull together and like oh yeah bringing in a little bit of this and a little bit of there let's add something mm-hmm. whereas in memory you just kind of turn a corner and it's there it's like oh yeah that thing that happened that is already fully formed and complete in my experience this was that i was getting my shoulder worked on and it was in it was in pretty intense pain and then suddenly there were just all these memories of being a deformed child living on a mountain selling things up and down the village to support myself because i'd been left out to die and hadn't for whatever reason and so now i was just trying to get enough food to get by as i kind of dragged myself up and down this village on a hill and yeah it was all just there there was no sense of the memories pulling together of the images slowly clarifying it was just memories that were there immediately and i have i'm uncomfortable they seem to be pretty directly what people mean when they say past life memories. Mm-hmm. I don't like to use that term for them because whatever it was, like maybe it's a memory from a past life. I'm extremely open to reincarnation to the point where it's probably my, if you like put a gun to my head and are like, what, what is the most likely thing that happens after I die? I'd probably go, yeah, reincarnation has my money for it. Mm-hmm. But even with that, I'm, not comfortable like reifying the image to that degree. The most I can say about them is that they are incredibly powerful imaginal content and that you should work with them in the way that they present themselves. Same as with dreams, like let the image be the image. Don't try to intellectually interpret it or reify it in any way, Mm -hmm. but let it be what it is. Allow it to bear its message to you. They're just really weird and powerful, whatever the hell they are. In an excellent Twitter thread titled, What If Healing Isn't a Coherent Concept, Mm. you wrote, quote, 
Healing as a concept in spiritual, self-help, and therapeutic circles is often colored with a lot of awayness and very little towardness. Intention is vague if present at all. You want to infuse your soul with divine connection? Excellent. I love it. Why does the word healing apply to that? You want to feel calm and comfortable and connected as a baseline state? Sounds great. Why is that healed? If you can't explain to yourself why the things you're doing are healing rather than exploring or floundering or something else, maybe don't use the word or frame because it invites incoherence, end quote. Now, I've noticed that there are a few ways to approach emotions. For instance, I can look at them directly, which unfolds and untangles them in the moment, or I can focus my attention on an emotional trigger, like a memory which will result in emotions bubbling up and intensifying. As a child, I used to dwell on an emotional trigger you know, in an effort to experience the kind of catharsis common after crying, for instance. But in retrospect, I don't think this healed anything at all. I'd like to hand you the microphone and just invite you to talk about what you think is specifically wrong with the healing framing, how unwholesome approaches may spread suffering, and what people should actually be doing in order to achieve good outcomes in this space. First off, I just want to like, I don't think there's anything particularly like capital W wrong with anyone's definite, well, with some people's, but with most <laughs> definitions of healing, for example. <laughs> I was just, yeah, I'm kind of... Maybe unproductive, though. Like may maybe we think of it as unproductive. Unproductive and... A lot of this is me kind of pointing to the way that healing is an imaginal concept, that it contains a huge amount of narrative for different people mm -hmm. and incredibly powerful narrative. Like, yeah, I mean, just look around at all the people who are saying that they're doing healing work or that they have healed or that they took time to heal. It is incredibly powerful and resonant. We are programmed to absolutely want to be healed to want to be whole to want to be restored to our full being but in order to do that we need a story of what is our whole being right what does a whole person what look like and this is decently easy in things like physical healing you get a cut what does it mean to heal the cut goes away and you get a little scar, and then hopefully the scar fades over time, et cetera, et cetera. Or you're sick, and you are displaying symptoms. What is healing? Those symptoms go away, and the sickness follows away. But when it gets to things like emotional healing or spiritual healing, yeah, it becomes a lot more nebulous. It becomes something that we need. Well, we don't really need, but we often feel like we need first an example image to move towards. There's that image from the Bible somewhere of, I think it was one with Moses in the desert and stuff, but they put like, they all got a bunch of snake bites and then they put a snake up on a post. And if everyone looks up to the snake, they're healed. There's a similar thing there where people feel like they need something to raise up and look at in order to move towards that for healing. And that can be incredibly helpful if you are holding something up as a North Star to be moving towards. That is a powerful practice. But a lot of the time, <laughs> it's not clear 
why we should regard that as healing, why we should regard the thing that you are doing as healing. And yeah, I don't have like a lot of clear, like I, I'm not here to offer one more snake to put up on the post of like, this is the correct mode of healing. Right. Like what I was trying to do there is kind of a clumsy movement towards like, can you see how you are creating narratives or in more cases, accepting narratives that people are giving you about what healed looks like? And can you see how that is an incredibly flexible thing and how you might question it and move about with it in your own way to move towards what you specifically need to move towards rather than some vague notion of, oh, I'm going to be healed. Okay, dig into that. What does healed actually mean to you? Oh, well, I want a greater sense of like power and agency. Cool. Go directly for that. You don't need healing as the middleman for that because mm -hmm. it's not clear to me why a higher sense of agency is necessarily healed. We can make some arguments around trauma, lowering agency and your sense of like goodness in the world and all of that. But still, like, what purpose is, it be, is being served at that point? Notice the thing that you're actually moving towards, the narrative that you're actually living. And from there, adjust. Whether that means leaning into it even harder in that direction, or if it means noticing that this is just kind of a story that you absorbed from some book at an airport one day <laughs> and mm -hmm. have kind of held in your unconscious ever since. And maybe you can let go of that one and take a closer look at your life for what you need to be moving towards rather than some vague idea of healing. So we're talking a bit about meditation. Can deep meditation be dangerous? And who do you think should and shouldn't meditate? So I think what's probably more fruitful is like narrowing down what we mean by meditation in a particular mm -hmm. sense. And then things that that is likely or unlikely to exacerbate, right? So I deal a lot with more open awareness meditation. And one thing that you got to keep in mind with open awareness, open somatic meditation stuff is that, yeah, when you're moving out of the systematic mode, when you're moving out of this like really focused, blinkered, claustrophilic mindset there's a lot of stuff that you have put out of your attention for very good reason, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're softening these blinkers, when you're allowing more things that are in your awareness to present themselves to you, you stop pushing them away, deeming them irrelevant, numbing them, etc. A lot of that, a lot of what comes back is life and joy and energy and aliveness and all of this good, wonderful stuff of finding awe in the world and purpose in your life and just a sense that each moment is something that is worth living even without some specific end that you can put to it. Even if you're not saving a bunch of orphans from a fire, this moment is still worthwhile and holy and awesome. But <laughs> those are not the only things that come up, right? You're going to get old memories, coming up. You're going to get a lot of trauma that comes up. Uh, one fairly reliable one is the fear of death. All of us spend a ton of time and energy pushing down the old death and trying to make sure that we don't have to think about it, that we don't really have to register the fact that 
out of all of the possible experiences in this world, the one experience that we are guaranteed is the failure of our body as we slip away into mystery, right? Mm -hmm. People don't want to deal with that, so we push it down. And fairly reliably with open, open awareness meditation, somatic meditation, this will come back up. The good part is that there's, for most people, there's not really just like an openness button that you can smash and have full total open awareness. It happens slowly and bit by bit. And, you know, there's gradual steps along this way of more things you become aware of. That pretty naturally helps with the titration of these things. It just lets out a little bit at a time, notice it, process it, let out a little more at a time, notice it, process it. Yeah, there's a particular type of person that is fairly common, and I was slash am definitely this type of person, mm -hmm. where like you look back at the objective facts of your life and go, oh yeah, there should be a ton of trauma back there, but I guess I dodged a bullet because I feel basically fine. <laughs> Once you get into open awareness, a lot of that stuff comes up and you're like, oh, it was fine because I shoved all of that into my back tension and now I'm not maintaining that back tension constantly. So it's coming back up. And yeah, in cases like that, it's really important to... Yeah, keep warning people and to keep an eye on yourself of just when difficult things are coming up, what is my attitude towards it? Is it just to like bear down and power through and do it? Generally not a great idea, right? Take mm -hmm. it gently. Just keep moving through. Pause if and when you need to, to let things process, let things titrate. And if things start getting out of hand, for the love of God, find a professional, <laughs> yeah. whether that means somatic experiencing or yeah, if talk therapy is going to be the thing that does it for you, go ahead, try that out. But if it gets really out of hand, don't try to just keep doing it alone. You don't need to necessarily go to a professional first thing, but you should talk to someone who is at least fairly good at recognizing oh, this is a normal level of like anxiety and we can help you deal with this. You just need community support mm -hmm. or who can look at you and go like, oh shit, no, we need to get you to a trauma therapist like yesterday. You're talking about trauma and you shared a quote by Peter Levine saying, trauma is not what happens to us, but mm. what we hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. I believe there is a distinction between Empathy described as identifying with and experiencing the world just as someone else does versus empathy described as cognitively understanding someone else's experience. Can you share more about what type of empathy you're talking about and how its absence as a, an empathetic witness amplifies the feeling of trauma? I can tell you what it means for me particularly, but Peter, if you're listening, just feel free to smack me and disavow me and all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But the second thing to, that's important to note, what you just talked about with the differences in types of empathy, those are internal experiences of a person experiencing empathy. Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about here is like 
kind of second person empathy, my experience of someone's empathy for my situation, right? So Mm. once we do that, things simplify quite a bit, right? How would you want someone to react to, you know, you, yeah, let's just use the example from Peter Levine's book. He gets hit by a car and is in the middle of the road, not sure what's happening to him, not sure how badly injured he is, just surrounded by people and knowing that he got hit by a car, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a woman there who is basically just pleasant and comforting him. And it's not much more complicated than that. He's like, she had a smell that reminded me of something nice. She was like touching me in a comforting way. Her voice was there and it was nice. That was as simple as it needed to be for him was that is an empathetic witness, someone who is there, who at the very least seems to care about your experience, wants you to do well, and who is there to witness your suffering and not try to downplay it, not try to push it away, but just be there with it and say, this is fine. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You said that a lot of breathwork and anxiety and trauma adjacent stuff has this vibe of tricking or outmaneuvering the nervous system into feeling okay when shit is not okay. And it rubs you the wrong way pretty often. How do you think of the relationship between the wisdom of sensation and appropriate action? Yeah. The core of this question for me is like, are you living in the first person or are you living in the third person? And that's the main issue that I'm pointing at with a lot of nervous system stuff that I see is that it is third person life. It treats the body as this thing that you have to deal with, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. It is this object and you are able to, if you do this particular breath of just, (sighs) 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 so calm now. Good. Excellent. Right. (laughs) but if you just use these little hacks on this object that you need to deal with then you can skate through life without it touching you basically that you know yeah let's just use like a tragic example of a family member dies and you go wow this feels really shitty Mm -hmm. it always feels shitty of course And then you go, all right, well, I know how to handle with this. I'll just do my four, seven, eight breathing for a few minutes, and then I'll pop some magnesium and do a couple of deep squats and some vagal toning humming, and we're all good. I'll be back in the zone, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, you're trying to avoid your life experience. You're trying to evade emotional capture, and that's not really what the situation is calling for. That's not what is being asked of you at this moment. And even in more, even without any kind of tragedy or like shit not being okay, just that difference between first person living and third person living, where you are treating the body as this object that needs to be manipulated in a particular way versus first person treating your body as, yeah, a friend (laughs) and a source of wisdom and grounding in your experience and as yourself, right? If we even think about this in terms of relationship, you don't want people to treat you like an object, right? You don't want them to be very clearly 
manipulating you and trying to like guide you towards particular action. I mean, when someone tells you, calm down, calm down, it's not usually accepted very well. If someone mm -hmm. is panicking and you go, calm down, get your shit together. Come on, deep breath, in, out, in, out, you're good, right? No, that's not how you do it. You approach them, you comfort them, you be an empathetic witness to their pain, to their suffering, to their stress. Similar with your own body, with your own soma. When your experience is rough and difficult, and just to like tweak this a little bit here, this is about stance towards things. This is about the attitude that we bring into something. Mm -hmm. There is nothing wrong with doing breathwork exercises, with knowing particular breathing patterns or supplements that help your body, that help you move through experience more gracefully. Nothing wrong with any of those things. It's only when we bring in this attitude of body as object that must be dealt with that it becomes a problem. That is the mm -hmm. core problem here. It is incredibly possible to treat your body with wisdom and empathy and care and go, you know what you need? Some four, seven, eight breathing. We're going to do that for a little while. <sighs> Are we feeling okay? Are we feeling better? eminently possible and a delightful way to go about things but yes the tone that i often see is what bugs me you pick up a you know a youtube video from some breathwork guy and it's very just like treating the body like it's an object that you need to hack you put out a good amount of work how do you think of creativity in relationship to linear versus non-linear productivity <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> Creativity just kind of... Uh, yeah, this one's a whole nut. I don't, I don't even know where to go, man. <laughs> <laughs> not with a K or not with an N? <laughs> Both. It's just... <laughs> Alright, so sorry. The... That's kind of a funny idea, actually. Yeah. Your, your knots make you not do things. Yeah, you talk to Mycelium Mage, you know him? Yeah, I know Mycelium, yeah. Yeah, he's got a fair amount of like his language stuff kind of toys with that. Your knots are knots. Well, it's funny. I haven't read his read, read that, but it's kind of funny we landed on the same idea. Yeah, I haven't read much of this. That we lived together for two months in Berlin, so I it was mostly oh, yeah. just like absorbing it through like two a.m. pacing the living room talks. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. All right, sorry. Back to the question. So, yeah, productivity is just generally a weird thing for me because a pretty regular experience for me is that I'll hop on a call with someone. And I'll go, you know, God, I can't get these the work that I want to get done done. I'm mm -hmm. not doing enough. There's a bunch of projects on the back burner. And then at some point in the call, they just like stare at me and break in and are like, you've released like eight things this week. What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> like you are constantly writing and putting stuff out and talking and doing things. What do you mean you're having trouble with productivity? And I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, I, I am constantly putting stuff out but like it's not exactly the stuff that i want to be putting out so it's difficult mm. but 
Yeah, with creativity, I don't know. I'm kind of a bad person to ask about creativity because I'm more forced into it than having to think about it. It's kind of coming back to that Eros thing. Just a lot of following the patterns that move through me force me to make certain things and say certain things and do things in particular ways. So creativity isn't anything I think about at all. It's just Mm -hmm. kind of, what do I have to do? And what are the ways that I need to do it? And this has come up a lot more recently around my, yeah, I've got a series of things that I'm working on called, uh, what have I been calling it? Graceful nonlinear productivity or graceful. It's expanded to graceful nonlinear living now because it turns out you Mm -hmm. can't separate life from productivity when you're doing it in particular ways. Right. But the core question for me at the moment is that if I can let go of a lot of this shouldness, a lot of the, I've never really resonated with this like coercion and self coercion framing of things, but it Mm -hmm. seems to map decently well to what they're talking about. If I can let go of this way of forcing myself into what I think needs to be done and on what timeframes it needs to be done and instead just allow the work to be driven by grace and exploration and curiosity and allow things to, yeah, allow my attention to move from one project to the next back and forth. They all kind of weave together. And this seems to work in a odd and nonlinear way where, you know, I'll have a project 70, 80% done, and then I'll put it to the side, be completely unable to muster the energy and will to actually finish the thing, feel bad about it for a while. And then a couple months later, some totally unrelated project that I'm working on unlocks what the missing element of that previous project was. And suddenly it's easy. I finished that last 20%. I put it out. It's all good. And this type of thing keeps happening to me more and more reliably. So I've just learned to trust it that it's fine to move from one project to the next And just let the creativity kind of go where it is going to go. Let the attention move to where it wants to move. And if if I am feeling anxious about a deadline that I put on myself not being met, that's just me. That's my own problem. The work doesn't have to really give a shit how I'm feeling about its progress. It is progressing in the way that it needs to. Hmm. Um, so my, my final question is what resources did you find that helped you do your process of investigation? Well, the, by far the biggest inflection point was, a uh, Reggie Ray's somatic descent program. Mm-hmm. That was huge. That was everything. My whole life changed after that. But in general, there were very few, like, consolidated sources. I kind of had to move through a lot of stuff and take little bits here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned a lot from early on. One of the more helpful things was I ran into a lot of chaos magic material and Mm -hmm. their entire working ethos was basically like, it doesn't matter what's real, what's not real. Take what is useful to you and leave the rest behind. You know, fuck it. Just find things that work for you and do them. And in the beginning, that was very freeing to me as someone who was like, yeah, really trapped in rational logic brain 
of like, basically I was spending all of my time feeling incredibly brave for being so goddamn miserable because at least I was brave enough to face the fact that the world is meaningless and a cold rock hurtling through space mm. on our way to death. And other people try to trick themselves by feeling right. joy and niceness <laughs> and having <laughs> relationships. Not me. Nuh-uh. I'm just going to sit here and be miserable as fuck because that's the rational, logical thing to do. Mm. And yeah, having this chaos magic material presented to me at a particular time and in a particular way gave me permission to be like, oh, I can set aside 45 minutes a week to just do something that doesn't actually make any sense. And it's fine inside of that container. It'll be fine. And yeah, obviously things did not stop there. Once I noticed that doing strange little rituals that didn't really make sense, but made me feel better. Once I realized that that made life actually feel worth living again for the first time in several years, and that it seemed to be undoing a bunch of emotional knots, making me better at relating to the people around me, making friends, all of this stuff. By the time I noticed that it was working really, really well, it was kind of too late for my rational brain to kick back in and assert control, right? Mm. I was too far outside of the misery of that to need to go back or to accept going back to it. So that's pretty wide view, just general, a bunch of weird chaos magic zines and chat books and stuff that I happened to find along the way. And from there, it moved much more into Vajrayana Buddhism, a whole lot of that type of stuff big overlap with shamanic material and oh i can't leave out the Jungians. uh i found joseph campbell in high school specifically because my doctrine teacher told us that there was one guy we should never go look at joseph campbell and his masks because <laughs> <laughs> it's just a bunch of lies about the religious heritage of humanity and it's denigrates christ and so you know by the end of the week i had a copy of volume one that i was smuggling through school and reading in my off hours mm -hmm. and yeah from there i found my way to young and a bunch of other jungian and post-jungian stuff and that yeah from the time i was 16 onward about every three or four years i would pretty reliably come back for like a month or two of just pounding a bunch of young stuff and that is weirdly one of the more consistent lineages running through my life Jung has found me at so many different points in my life so my relationship to him and like understanding of him and his students has changed a ton because you know i found him when i was in high school at a christian parochial school mm -hmm. being rebellious reading joseph <laughs> campbell and then found him again when i was hardcore rationalist materialist dude and like, okay, so this is some descriptive stuff about like the brain and the psyche. This is fine. Found it again in a more spiritual bent. I'm like, okay, this is the spiritual legacy of mankind described through early 1900s scholar. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Jung has been one of the more consistent, helpful voices running through my life. Well, I think that summary is the perfect place to wrap up 
Thank you so much for coming on, River. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more from River, you can buy his somatic resonance course at soma.inthewilderless.com. You can access more of River's work at inthewilderless.com. And you can also follow him on the underscore wilderless on Twitter. For links and a deeper dive on my episodes, check out becomingcreature.substack.com. And if you like this episode, please like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you for listening. Until next time.